welcome to all listeners to the Gen Z podcast for generational change, where we give you a weekly topic of what we have learned, what we have researched, and our opinions and how it affects us. So, without any further ado, I am CJ, he, him, 24, and I'm accompanied by... My name is Nolan, my pronouns are he, him, I am 19. And? Good evening, I'm Sam, 22, also he, him, uh, and... Yeah, and I'm Christina, um, she, her, and I'm 21. As well as... Hi everyone, I'm Brayden, 18, he, him. And? And I'm Mallory, uh, my pronouns are typically she, <laughs> uh, and I live in South Florida, and uh, I am not under 21. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, uh, for everyone that is here to tune in on today's topic, we are going to be talking about the uh, increase of anti-LGBT, specifically T, uh, transgender legislation that has been passed uh, in the recent months. Uh, we're going to be talking first, though, on giving us a baseline of some information on just transgenderism uh, and dispelling this on that. So first, we have Christina to talk about that. Yes. So I just wanted to start off with two common misconstructions of information, a.k.a. myths and what they're actually known for. So the first myth is that only a minority of children who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria remain gender dysphoric as adults. Um, and the information that I have gathered um, is from medical transitions. Um, CJ just pulled up a source as well that also describes um, social transitions. But from my information, numerous published studies have noticed that transition is rare with those who began transitioning in adolescence and um, are the least likely to transition of all the age demographics that medically transitioned in these studies. Um, and for CJ's um, source that was about social transition, 95% um, of those who socially transitioned actually remained and did not detransition per se. Um, and once again, everyone's transition is different. Um, and just want to see if maybe Miss Mallory can go over and see what she has to say about it on her experience. Well, thank you. So uh, I guess that what we should do for the sake of understanding why in the world would I be here? Uh, I am, uh, I'm a, I'm Jen, uh, adjacent. I'm a friend of Jen's and I am in South Florida. Uh, and the reason that I was invited to come here tonight is because I actually am trans. I transitioned as a young person. I am an adult, uh, but uh, forever young at heart. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I'm hoping to be able to lend my perspective from my own lived experience and uh, from maybe the experiences of others that I have known. Of course, that will all be anecdotal. Um, but uh, thank you guys for having me tonight. Um, so I'm sorry. Can you just remind me what was the prompt? And then I will. I will. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. So we're talking about the ratio of transitioning and detransitioning in youth, both medically and socially. 
And so we're talking about, uh, I think the figures were 95% yes. of, young, of people who are essentially, I guess, under 18 who have taken steps to medically transition do not do uh, uh, engage in something that we might call a detransition. Is that right? So the 95 was for social transitions. Um, the medical one did not provide an exact number just because I had multiple sources that okay. had different ones. Yeah, and, and, and the rate, uh, by the way, is specifically of children who are under the age of 12. Um, oh, under and the age it was, And it was uh, 94% uh, of youth had uh, transitioned um, and stayed within their transition. So the main point for me bringing up that part of the article is just saying, like, the, the, the premise of, oh, well, you know, children are being indoctrinated toward this or, you know, believing in that. It tends to be there are people that find that they want to transition very early on. And it's and this study looked at them when they transition at eight, like, again, socially, age six, age eight, age 10, sure. age 12. Um, and then five years later, track to see if they were still wanting to be of that gender that was correct. Right. And just saying if there was anything uh, either from experience that you know of, experience that you have, uh, or any other data or comments that you want to bring into that. Well, I think that it's really important that we uh, we focus in on the words want versus need, because yeah. when someone is very young, uh, and I think that we can all kind of uh, think back to our own very early formative years, uh, if there's something that is our true heart's desire, something that we uh, we feel very strongly about um, those kinds of things typically stick with us for our whole lives. Um, and I think that this is particularly true when you're talking about someone uh, of a young age asserting their identity. We do so in so many different ways, but we all know that how we express ourselves in terms of gender, uh, it flavors everything else uh almost everything else that we do in our lives. So I think that it is very easy for me to, um, to those, those figures do seem to be quite credible. Um, you know, if you have a child who is, uh, is, is communicating with their parents and saying, Hey, you know, this is who I am and, uh, and this is who I need to be. And, and this is, this is how I need my life to go. Um, you know, it's not, not, not to minimize, uh, the, the experiences of those who end up uh, transitioning later in life. But I have to say there's something particularly um, um, genuine uh, in my experience, um, seeing young children uh, who, are, uh, who, are, who are bearing their souls to their parents and to those around them that they know and saying, this is who I need to be. And so I... Um, you know, I am of the opinion that those children do need to be supported. Um, and I think that, of course, that those uh, transitions need to be uh, overseen by uh, by medical professionals. Um, but that's kind of that's what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? Yeah. So the main thing uh, of bringing this up is, again, we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of things with tran uh, transgenderism and the laws that are attacking the community and these people. Um, but we just want, or at least for me, I absolutely just wanted to say that it's like, yes, these are you know, just humans that want human rights uh, and to try to have the state come in to legislate against it, uh, I believe is very, very harmful. And I just want, and as yeah. part of that, it's just 
establishing a baseline. It's like, hey, this big boogeyman to address directly. Oh, you know, these, you know, the young children, that's what we need to worry about before ramping it up and up and up. Uh, even in that case, it is still a falsehood uh, boogeyman archetype. So that's that's the part that I want to let the audience know of uh, before going into the discussion uh, forward. Anything from Nolan Sam Britain? I think it's important for the people to understand the new the because education is the is fatal to bigotry i feel like and so the the most important thing is to educate people on what the process actually looks like for trans youth which i think very few people who aren't um you know already entrenched in that world of of the science really understand uh so maybe mallory as somebody who transitioned at a young age can speak to what does that entail before the age of 18 and that if 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 a child expresses that uh desire then what what does that entail from a medical perspective like when you go to the doctor well i think that uh we all uh can understand the way that um medical treatment works in this uh country uh and particularly um pharmaceutical treatment um which is a cornerstone of um transition or evolution, as I prefer to say in my case, um, is, is always, it, it has to involve a doctor. Uh, it has to, because we're not able to go to the pharmacy and say, Hey, I want this and this and this antibiotic, you know, this antidepressant or this painkiller. Um, you know, so I will speak from my own experience. Um, my, uh, my, my steps uh, in terms of my own evolution uh, took place uh, around the time that I was 17 going on 18. And, um, and so at that point in time, this was around 1999, 2000. And at that point, I could barely even find a doctor to, um, to, to treat me in terms of my hormones uh, and regulating my mm -hmm. hormones. Um, so I think that it really is like you were saying, I think that we're making mountains of molehills just because we have some doctors in this country who are actually taking a step back and trying to, and taking a second look, uh, at the issues relating to gender identity in young people. Um, whereas for, since time immemorial, we've had most doctors, um, in this country, I guess around the world as well, who, who ins would, instead of uh, in leaning in on this, would say, listen, I don't want to get involved. Um, and that was that was the story whenever I was coming up. Um, in Broward County, I think that there might have been one or two doctors uh, in the whole county who were willing to write prescriptions and who were willing to, um, to treat um, young people um, or just actually just trans people uh, at all uh, in terms of regulating their hormones. Uh, around that time. And we're now 23, 24 years later. Um, and so it, it, you know, I think that the more doctors who are involved and who are taking a look at this, the better. Um, that's, and that's, that makes me very happy uh, and very pleased uh, that these young people are being able to, with medical professionals, being able to exercise their decisional privacy and their bodily autonomy, which is enshrined in the first amendment. Um, uh, actually it's, well, it's in the bill of rights. So that's the, that's the first Pursuit amendment. Of happiness. Right. Uh, um, first amendment is speech, but 
So, yes. Well, yes, but see, that freedom of, freedom of speech is actually is, is actually more broad and it's freedom of expression. Yep. And yeah. part of freedom of expression um, is is decisional privacy, bodily autonomy. Um, and so um, and I think that it's really important for us to and I'm sure that we can discuss this later. Um, but uh, those rights should not are not they're they're not curtailed just because someone is under 18 or because they are a child. Uh, and that is something very important for us to look at from the legal context uh, and, and the human rights context yeah. um, for these and, children. And, and, and a part uh, that I, that we want to uh, got, get onto as far as like, how did these uh, anti-trans laws start to come up with? Uh, there was actually a Mother Jones article that was talking about leaked emails and other conversations that Sam's going to go over for us here uh, about what the findings were, uh, because this has been something that has been orchestrated. And while normally it's, oh, well, that's just conspiratorial. Oh, you're being paranoid. It's like this is uh, information that has come out. So, Sam, if you want to yeah, talk with us. Yeah. Um... The Mother Jones piece does discuss a lot of the state-by-state state legislation that's being pushed, um, or it sort of breaks it down into the different classes of legislation because so many states are pushing variations of the same thing. Uh, but one of the big, one of the big pushes is from an organization called the Eagle Forum, which was actually founded by someone named Phyllis Schlafly way back in the. 50s and 60s. She was a huge anti-gay activist back in the day and um, another group called the Alliance Defending Freedom. So, you know, them and groups like the Heritage Foundation, these are largely right-wing evangelical based uh, sort of anti-LGBT and I guess probably other anti-civil rights legislation. You know, they sponsor a lot of this legislation. They do a lot of lobbying on this work and they have uh, been behind something called the Vulnerable Child Protection Act in South the South Dakota legislature, but it isn't limited to South Dakota. 18 other states have very similarly worded pieces of legislation passing through their legislatures at the same time. And it essentially makes it a felony to provide gender affirming medical care to youth under the age of 16, which is in direct contravention of the guidelines of the Endocrine Society, the American College of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, so on and so forth. Every major, you know, medical society and, um, you know, I, I would imagine these are mostly endocrinologists when you're talking about youth and hormone replacement therapy. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious about the, 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 the level of, of and the surge of this legislation across the country at the state level and I, not just you know, not just you know about the the felony for medical care, but also for way lots of other a aspects of of trans life, whether it be athleticism, um, youth sports. You know, we're talking about the rights of children, the rights of parents to you know be part of these decisions or not, uh, or the rights of children to be free of their parents' decisions, so on and so forth. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, I'm just curious what everybody thinks about about legislation like this. And a lot of it's passing on, on largely party line votes. In some cases, I believe in Utah, uh, governor, there was a case of Republican governor actually um, vetoing one of it. So Governor Spencer Cox, a Republican governor of Utah, actually 
vetoed one. It was not um, this piece of legislation, but it was uh, legislation that was going to stop trans youth from being able to compete in school sports. And I think he vetoed that, uh, giving an explanation saying that, you know, the 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 challenges and hurdles faced by trans and non-binary youth are already so high to begin with um, that he just didn't really want to be adding to that in any sort of competitive sports context. And um, just to give context to that, one more thing I'm going to say is the Trevor Project in 2021 reported that over half of trans and non-binary youth in the United States have considered suicide at some point in their life. Uh, and, and to summarize the uh, points of the Mother Jones article is that this recent surge of anti-trans uh, legislation has been something that has not been out of stand, like standard lawmakers saying, hmm, I think that we should you know, do this or listening to necessarily the will of the people uh, and their constituents advocating for we want you know this bill passed, we want this protection. Uh, it has very much been the legislatures themselves working with uh, high donor uh, ex- uh, religious extremist groups, uh, trying to get this passed and then imposing that on to the rest of the population. Well, uh, isn't that so often the case? Yes, uh, it, it, it is definitely something where you know it's a consistent uh, issue. But the main point with this is saying like this is not something that is even. As you said earlier, this is something that goes against uh, the First Amendment. This goes against our founding principles uh, and yet is something that is being attacked because of another organization. I think it's important for us to take a moment to talk a little bit about what actual hormonal intervention uh, in any patient uh, who is uh exploring gender identity, uh, exploring who they are or who are making those types of affirmations entails. And uh, and this applies particularly with young people. Um, when someone is in puberty or they are pre-puberty, uh, there are medications that uh, can be prescribed to um, to slow or to diminish uh, the progression of puberty. Uh, And this is typically um, what uh, the first step is. So imagine that you're 11, um, you were born uh, physiologically male uh, or perceived to be male. Um, There are steps that would, that would be the first one that I can imagine that an endocrinologist would take and say, listen, you know, this, uh, this young person is probably uh, on, the pr- on the precipice of puberty. If they need more time to think about kind of where their life is going, what, who they are, uh, where they stand on all of this, <clears throat> this is the first option. Then the next step is for actual hormones to be prescribed to change the hormonal pro- profile of uh of that patient uh so i think that this is a very important thing uh to point out because um with young people i don't really think that it's gonna do so much damage not and by i'm i'm not a doctor um i i I am trained though as uh as a as a medical and life sciences attorney 
so I, I have some exposure to this and I also have my own lived experience. But I think that it's very important uh, for us to kind of ex- wait in the nuance here um, and to understand that the first step is not going to be to uh, to wash a young person's bloodstream with new hormones uh, to completely change their profile. That is not the first step. The first step is typically to kind of pause puberty uh, or their 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 hormonal development kind of where it is so that they don't have to uh, necessarily have to deal with the uh, the irreversible effects that puberty can cause, such as uh, secondary sex traits like uh, skeletal changes, like voice changes. Um, what are a few others that you guys can think of here? Those are those are the two that strike. Those those, those are the uh, two major parts. Um, in terms of uh, puberty blockers, the effects is it can. Uh, stop or limit uh, facial hair and body hair, deepening of the voice, broadening of shoulders, growth of Adam's apple, uh, growth of gonads, uh, breast development, broadening of hips, uh, periods. Yes. Uh, and then for, and, and that's you know, by, by gender. And then for both, it is uh, growth in height, development of sex drive, uh, impulsive rebellious uh, or risk-saving peeing behavior. Uh, accumulation of calcium in the bones and fertility. Right. Uh, puberty blockers uh, are typically considered uh, very safe. Uh, there's not any known uh, negative effects of, on bone development or height from taking them. Uh, as you said, is a pause, uh, but the research um, is still you know, a little bit limited due to the novelty of it. Um, and we don't know the long-term effects uh, until people get older, but so far we have not seen any uh, negative effects from long-term uh, going on, on puberty. Meanwhile, the upsides are, of course, being able to be far more firm within your gender, not needing to have you know top surgery, for example, um, or uh, needing to go through the distress of your body literally uh, moving away from your perception of it. Uh, right, which correct. leads to a lot more happiness uh, of the person that's able to take them. Uh, and if you choose to get off the puberty blockers because you're like, you know what, I do feel that I'm you know, non-binary or I do feel like actually I, I do feel more comfortable with uh, you know, my assigned gender at birth, then you will be able to still experience um, a quote-unquote natural uh, puberty without needing uh, additional hormones. And that will, again, it just is a pause. It is a temporary block uh, that slows that process. Um, so, and, and, and that is just you know, for, for more information of how the process is able to work. Uh, something that I want to continue because what I'm trying to do is get on, here is the various different bills that have been being passed and then talking uh, more on that and our opinions on that to get to the wider discussion. Um, so the next part is uh, just talking uh, similarly to the uh, trans um, ban on athletes in Utah uh, in the House, and this is on the federal government that has been done by the GOP, uh, has passed a ban uh, on transgender athletes being able to participate. Uh, a quick note on uh, transgender athletes in terms of their participation in sports, and we'll be able to talk more about that soon. Uh, is that uh, currently, and this was a, a study from 
Canada. I'm forgetting the exact organization. Pulling it up. Uh, but typically athletes, uh, after one year of being on hormone replacement therapy, uh, does have a, uh, they, the effects that they have uh, over others is negligible. But by passing this law and trying to ban everyone, it's like this is going to be dead in the Senate. But what it signals to trans people is, hey, we are trying to get you gone. What it signals to women is like, hey, we will uh, be looking into doing inspections for you if people are accusing you uh, of doing these things. What it signifies to, you know, sports are great for building community. Sports are great for developing uh, just help within other people. And to try to deny them this is a little bit cruel, but that is sort of the point. Uh, speaking on cruelty, uh, the thing that we have pulled up here is on a, uh, or sorry, the next thing that we have uh, to talk is on Florida. Uh, there is currently legislation that is being passed to try to take away uh, parents from their children if they are supportive uh, of their children's transition. Uh, and so for that, we have, uh, I, I, I forget which uh, one of uh, the other hosts were going to be talking on that. Right. So, um, Again, my name is Nolan. I'm very happy to be here. And um, so the bill that we were just talking about, um, about you know, transgender, you know, and the state taking custody of transgender um, minors um, from their parents um, has to do with um, when the state finds out uh, gender-affirming health care. And, you know, this bill, it's called SB 254. Um, and it, it's in action when, um, you know, when, well, obviously, <laughs> transgender um, patients need to go to the doctor and, you know, obviously they're trying to, you know, trans or transition. Um, and, you know, this is a huge risk because, you know, this is just ripping them away, basically kidnapped um, from, you know, their parents, even if they're supportive, supportive of this. Um, you know, opponents of the bill, including the ACLU in Florida, you know, they argue that, you know, this legislation is unnecessary, it's unconstitutional. Not only is it extremely dangerous, but, you know, it encourages abuse and hostility for, from the public um, towards the transgender community. And I feel that that's, that's you know, the, the entire grunt of this, where we're allowing something that should be more personal to us, um, something that we should decide ourselves at our own pace, and we decide who's involved in it, um, we no longer have the power to do that. That's on the hands of the state. And whether or not we're comfortable with, you know, other people coming into our lives and deciding whether we're allowed to, you know, see doctors, something that should be a safe place for everyone, regardless of, you know, sexual orientation or your transgender or anything like that. Um, there's just this loss of, you know, fundamental human rights. Um, so, that's what um, well, this house ban has on um, says. Um, it was just filed very recently, March third. Um, yeah, if there's anyone that wanted to add in, maybe some insight um, on you know the potential implications on this. Um, anything? Yeah, we'll, we'll be getting to the implications on everything. Uh, again, I'm 
we're, we're, we're going a little bit more on a speed about. Uh, but the other part is is the this ban, if we were to go through, were would be to take children that are in welcoming and loving households with supportive parents uh, to rip them out and put them into the foster care system uh, as if they were being uh, abused in a great amount of ways. And that, I feel, is insane travesty, and it is something that is, of course, signaling to everyone who's in this community, hey, you think that you are going to have uh, this as a thing that might come up, then you absolutely need to leave the state and drive them out uh, to the cheers of a certain uh, group of people. Uh, but this is, of course, not something that is just attacking children. No, 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 because the GOP is continuing to play their hand louder and louder uh, with the Missouri ban to now talk about that. Yeah, so before I start, I do want to apologize to everyone. Normally, I and my screen look a lot better, but my computer decided to crash two minutes before we went live. So we have the iPhone quality. What happened is in Missouri, which obviously it's a state that's majority Republican, so Republican Assembly, Republican Senate, and Republican Governor, there have been an extreme, there's been a very strong progression of anti-trans bills being signed into law. Um, these have been among the strictest in the entire country, and that's including extremely conservative states like Alabama or Mississippi. The most latest bill that was just, I believe, either passed by both branches of the legislature or even signed in by the governor already essentially is a complete and total ban on any form of transitioning for youth and for minors. Um, as and I said, adults. and adults too. Basically, nobody's safe at any age because the good old Republican line, oh, we're trying to protect children. Yeah, no, it's going a lot further beyond that. This is mimicking a lot of the rhetoric that has been coming out of Republicans nationwide. So, for example, at I believe it was CPAC, there was a speaker who talked about completely what he said was eradicating transgenderism, which like, I don't even know how big of a dog whistle you can get. That's not even a dog whistle at this point. Um, Donald Trump, for his presidential campaign, put out a video where he's calling for his new policy, which is to completely defund any governmental organization that accepts people who have transitioned at any age. So this is already happening at, at a state level. And I think it shows that this isn't about kids. This isn't about trans kids. This is about anyone who the Republican Party doesn't like and who doesn't deem to be their image of a model American. Because we started off, this is just about, as I said, protecting kids, stopping them from making these medical decisions, which, by the way, no kid just walks into a doctor's office, says, hey, I want to change my gender, and that's it. They get a surgery right there. No, it's an extremely long process. It's a difficult process. There are constant checks and balances along the way. It's not at all easy. Um, it's not going to stop with trans kids. It's going to go on to all trans people. We're in that progress already. And it's going to go on once. Unfortunately, if this is successful for Republicans and they're able to attack the whole trans community, I guarantee you next they're going to go on to every single other member of the LGBTQ community. So if you're gay, lesbian, bi, pan, whatever, they're coming. 
And I feel like this is also going to progress onto racial and religious minorities. So with trans girls in sports, the argument that's always made is that they have some hormonal advantage. If you look at what the Olympics has been doing, now they're banning Black women from Africa because they have naturally higher levels of testosterone. It's going to come after everyone who isn't the image of the model, Christian, white, conservative. Yeah, and and to again just just speak on the uh, Missouri. In Missouri, not only did they ban the ability to get gender affirming care for adults, uh, again dropping that pretense of for the children, they also tried or attempted to create a registry where you would report other people for being transgender or actively practicing transgenderism to get them on a list. In Florida. Uh, we have that for colleges. If you were seeking uh, any sort of trans care, uh, you are now on a list. Uh, in Florida as well, and this is something that we talked on a little bit last week, uh, there is also laws that are trying to pass that will limit your ability to wear clothes that do not uh, coincide with your gender assigned at birth, um, which can also then be oh, if I am a trans woman and I'm wearing a dress, that is the same as being naked in front of a child uh, while also trying to put in uh, death penalty laws uh, for um, sexual crimes uh, against children, uh, which if that is being marked as wearing a dress is leading to, again, death. Uh, In Texas, we've also had laws where the state is trying to require you if to wear clothes of your assigned gender at birth and the continuation uh, of this and its effects of just trying to drive a wedge all the way to the end of democracy is uh, we also have our last part before we get into our general discussion topic of the day uh, is in Montana. Uh, we had a uh, Democratic House legislature in the House uh, who happens to be trans was talking and giving fiery speeches on the uh, effects of anti-trans legislation that was being talked about, debated, uh, and is expected to pass, talking about, hey, this will lead to the deaths of more trans people, that this will lead to the deaths of people you know, ending their own lives. Uh, and as punishment, they decided to silence her, uh, as well as misgender her uh, multiple times, and say that you are not allowed to speak until you apologize, for what you have done, uh, while then also, as protesters came to say, let her speak, uh, went on to arrest said protesters, liking it to an insurrection. This is something that is continuing to ramp up more and more and more. So, with all those laws laid out, and we have only covered a fraction of the laws being laid out, I hope that we have demonstrated this is something of growing intensity and growing resentment and growing hate and despise and how, and, and, and the, the first question I want to kind of open up to the rest of us is as the generation that grew up with being able to get married to whoever you want being normalized as it is been to be able to grow up in an area where there wasn't nearly as much uh, hatred or phobia between peers, just everyone's read on the situation because for me, it is abhorrent and terrible, uh, and it has been surprising to me, uh, given the circumstances of my development of the youth, but to open it up more widely. 
So here in Florida, where they're ba- um, where we have a number of these pieces of legislation under consideration, including I think a trans bathroom bill in the schools, as well as the expansion of "Don't Say Gay" uh, all the way up to like twelfth grade, um, currently going through the legislature, where they're prohibiting any discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity. I find it interesting because I also grew up in Florida, like some of us here, and um, you know, it's I think back to like my high school graduation, which was almost at this point, almost five years ago, uh, where our valedictorian actually came out as trans in their valedictorian speech. Um, and it was received with thundering applause from you know the vast majority of the audience uh, of thousands of people. And this was something that was pre-approved by the administration. And I think about that moment and you know that, that, that moment in history as that was in 2018 being really, um, really pivotal, I think, you know, as something that uh, even five or 10 years before that wouldn't have been possible. And then I think now in 2023, would that be possible in the state of Florida? Would the administration be as comfortable pre-approving that type of speech? You know, would the reception be the same? Probably not. I think there'd be a lot more trepidation because of the environment in Tallahassee that's creating, especially when it comes to these issues of education and the public school system. And to me, that's the biggest tragedy of it all is that we we could have made this progress and then backtracked on it. Um, and I guess because I, I know, Mallory, you were a rowing coach at a big private school here in Broward County. And I I guess I'd be curious on your opinion. I had pulled up some, some sort of <clears throat> scientific data to dispel some, you know, myths, but I'd be, I'd be curious to know your your thoughts on, you know, so much of the focus of, of the, the trans youth sports debate is about, or sports in general, I guess, not just youth is on women's sports. There seems to be this notion that, uh, cisgender women are the, the victims in, you know, allowing trans athletes to compete. I'd be curious to know where trans men fall into this regulatory structure as well. And what trans male athletes, because, you know, theoretically, if, trans women pr- provide some sort of disadvantage to cis women then aren't trans, you know, it, by the same logic, like wouldn't trans men be at a disadvantage to cis men, but obviously there's so many more nuances. So I, I'd be curious to know what you think as somebody who's coached a team. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I think the thing that I would want to start out, uh, saying here is that for, in my opinion, uh, in my own lived experience, uh, athletics and being able to take advantage and be involved in the things that you're interested in as a young person is very, very important to your, your coming of age, uh, to your form, your formation as a, as a, as a well-rounded individual. Um, sports have, um, have given me discipline and it's given me confidence. And I have to tell you that when I was a young person, uh, I really didn't feel comfortable to play sports. Um, and then only after I was in my twenties, did I feel comfortable to, to be able to do that. I started out rowing, uh, in college and, and then I, uh, I've, I kind of moved on to, uh, to, to coaching rowing. I've also, uh, worked with, uh, young, uh, athletes at IMG Academy and, um, in, on the other side of Florida and Bradenton, um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm involved in racket sports here. I'm, I play pickleball. I'm an avid pickleball player here in South Florida. Um, and I have to say that, uh, 
in, you know, in my own experience and just kind of more generally with, with people, um, young people do absolutely need to have an opportunity to be able to take advantage, to be involved in the things that they want to be involved in. If that's sports, if that's art, whatever that might be. Uh, if it's, if it's becoming politically aware, like all of you, you should not be denied that opportunity. Um, but I do think that uh, I do think that it is important for all of us to explore and wade, and like I said before, to wade into the nuance here. Uh, and I think that the it, you know, and if you guys have any other examples you'd like to bring up, I'd love to hear them. But I think the first uh, big uh, hullabaloo uh, in terms of uh, trans women in uh, women's sports was Leah Thomas. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the case of Leah Thomas. Um, and, uh, Leah, uh, I, I, I don't, I haven't researched, uh, the situation in, in any great detail. Um, uh, but, uh, she, uh, she, she transitioned, uh, I guess, uh, around the time that she started college and then she was competing as a swimmer and then she won some sort of major championship or, or something of that. Some, she was like a top ranked women swimmer. This led to, um, her beating out, uh, the person that was in second place, who was a Floridian and governor DeSantis, uh, uh, like declared her the winner in Florida. I don't know. But the point is, is that, um, I, I do think that like, as we were talking about medical transition, I do think that, uh, I think that there is, a the people who are expressing concern have a point, uh, that it, it is important for those who, who want to engage in, in competitive sports um, to be able to, uh, to, they need to be able to be on some sort of even relatively even footing uh, with their competitors. And that's going to mean things like addressing their hormonal profile and things like that and doing so for a long enough period um, to actually make an impact on their physicality. Um, so I, you know, I don't know, I'm like, I don't know Leah Thomas at all. Uh, and I know, I know this much about the case, but, um, the concern was, is because she had, she had a physique, which was very, uh, uh, very powerful, uh, you know, that this was all attributed to the fact that she, uh, that she was of XY chromosomes and all of that. Interestingly enough, though, uh, I was listening to uh, ContraPoints recently, uh, her most recent video, and she was saying that uh, the record that Leah Thomas broke has already been broken. Uh, yes. and, 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 and uh, what's the word whenever you break, you break a record by a cis, a cis woman. Yes. So, and and um, I can, I can go into a little bit more detail to summarize please, the event. Please go uh, ahead. Yeah. So, so what happened, uh, is that she, before she transitioned, uh, was uh, obviously, uh, competing as a swimmer in male, uh, sports was pretty good, uh, as in like top 10, uh, within that area. Then once, uh, she decided to start transitioning, she was still competing against other men and did, uh, much worse, uh, where they were like top like 50 something. Uh, and then they were able to, again, win that, uh, one, uh, national event, which again, sp sparked outrage, uh, of that specific year. They, the records were done rather low, but it was used as a way to attack and vilify, uh, you know, trans people saying, oh, they're, you know, taking all sorts of records. 
however, like you said, it that year was actually a particularly uh, not great showing uh, when it came to things, but uh, and and then was you know, taken back uh, by someone who's assist. But it, it, in terms of and, and and this is what we have in terms of studies is that among elite level uh, athletes within one year. And granted, again, there was thirty six. Uh, there was thirty six trans athletes in college level sports. There was even less trans athletes in higher than college level sports. And this is so. This is already a very uh, overblown issue. But or even or perhaps even none. Uh, none that I know of. <laughs> but yeah, when I hear that, is, yeah. Okay, yeah, go go ahead. For I think of this on. one case where. For the 2020 Olympics, which, if you remember, actually held summer 2021 because of COVID, there was somebody competing from New Zealand in the women's weightlifting category, and now she was a trans woman. And I remembered seeing so much outrage about it, like on all of the conservative publications, so Fox News, the New York Post. There was article after article about how, oh, this isn't fair. Um, a trans woman who started off her career competing in men's sports is now going to be competing against other women. And there's going to be such a huge advantage and she's going to crush them all and it won't be fair. And then this trans woman from New Zealand got to the Olympics, went to her first lifting session and failed. (laughs) She was not good at all. Um, No disrespect to her. I mean, all athletes have their moments where they don't keep up. But clearly this advantage that everyone was saying she would have and that would cause her to win a gold in her entire category, it never happened because with trans people, there isn't this great, huge advantage that everyone says that there is. A trans person can go to a sporting competition and completely fail. They can be on level with every other athlete or, you know, maybe they're just a really good athlete and they are naturally better than everyone else. We see that Serena Williams, she's not trans, but she's better than probably any other women's tennis player of all time. So of course she's going to win every match that she's in with trans. This is a manufactured issue because people need something to talk about and Republicans who want to run hateful campaigns need a group that they can hate. And it's just that right now, this is the easiest target. Well, I think that it's, I think that it's also, um, on that point, I think that it's very easy to rile people up whenever you tap into something that, uh, such as uh, an emotion such as disgust or a response such as disgust. Um, and and I'm not uh, I'm not some expert on uh, the uh, the reaction or the response of disgust. But I was listening to uh, a video on on YouTube by a content creator who was who was talking about the effect of disgust and how it has shaped societies, and I really do think that that is at the center of all of this. Uh, there is just, and I'm and I'm particularly talking about um, uh, disgust against people who are trans women, trans feminine. Um, there's a, a degree of disgust because they have been perceived that they are eschewing or rejecting the privileges of manhood. Okay. So that's the first, uh, that's the first prong. The second prong is that um, they are the object of revulsion uh, by the people who are in power in the societies uh, in the patriarchal society that we happen to be in. 
Um, I, you know, I think I can fairly confidently assert that uh, trans women and trans feminine people are not the object of most heterosexual men's desires. <laughs> I have never been chased. Uh, I have never been surrounded by guys who are chasing me and asking me uh, for my number. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that has a lot to do with it. And it's not something that is often talked about. Um, but it's the, it's the closest that I can come to understanding why is this why is this such a piece of red meat to throw out there uh, and to get people riled up? And that's, it seems to be pretty plausible to me from my experience. Do you think that, Oh, sorry. Um, I I was going to say, you know, on, on, on the topic of uh, disgust or bias, I, I I am curious uh, to both Nolan and Christina. Uh, I, I, you know, again, growing up throughout my life, I'm originally from Los Angeles. Uh, never had any sort of disgust or dislike toward uh, trans people because it was just a normalized thing that was around me. Uh, but Nolan or Christina, did you guys have to ever overcome like any sort of internalized homophobia or transphobia? Or did, was it also a very much like natural occurrence for uh, you two, especially like later on once you were in high school? So Christina first, if you have anything to say. Yeah. So for me, it was more of a conflict because my mom immigrated from Peru over here. And um, even in Peru, she was her own uh, minority because she was indigenous. And so um, she had immigrated here and what was instilled onto her, which was Catholicism. We never really fully followed. And so with our indigenous culture, gender is a spectrum sexuality is a spectrum so there was never in my household it was never something that I ever questioned um my mom has had an open door policy for my family members who have visited and wanted to needed some help establishing themselves in the country so we've been welcome to sir our our friends who were surrogates our friends who even my uncle who was gay and his um, fiance. And so it was something I never thought of. And so when I, I believe maybe eighth grade, seventh grade um, was in school, I real that was like my first actual experience um, when I, I think I was on Tumblr or something. And I noticed on social media that someone was saying um, some pretty homophobic things. And that was my first actual realization of, oh, why do people, people just, why are people like this? I just didn't know that that was something that I didn't know that a disgust or some sort of like punishment towards people that weren't necessarily your the same sexual identity or same sexual orientation as you existed. So I think that with the presence of social media, I realized that I was like, oh, that's why there was so much community and that's why there was so much pride because of these things. And so I think that definitely wasn't until 13, 14 that I realized that there is a serious need for community and being able to moderate when it comes to stuff like that. Sure. And Nolan, did you have, uh, you know, any experience where if you had a specifically like homophobic or transphobic household versus again just growing up in that hey this was a normalized thing that was you know part of things and then just of any other you know friends relationships that you have formed 
uh, as well, where you like basically if you've ever had a circumstance where like I don't know if I can talk to this person because of how they present or how you know who they like. Right. So I feel like I I have family. I'm Latino. I'm from Peru as well, and I have a family of eight aunts and uncles, and we're all here in South Florida and. Having a single mom and being raised by her, and you know when my mom couldn't, um, you know, raise me, um, I had my family by my side, and so I would be with my uncles and aunts all throughout my life, and you know I grew a really close bond with them, and you know sort of through middle school, um, and a few times in high school, I started you, um, you know, discovering parts of myself and dis- discovering my sexuality, and you know being Latino, uh, my family is Catholic. And, you know, they have, well, each of them has, you know, a certain degree of, you know, religiousness and, you know, openness to, you know, homosexuality. And it was particularly tough when I, you know, acknowledged my, my feelings because no matter how I felt, whether I wanted to brush them aside or, you know, bring them up, you know, this was a family that, you know, I had more of a connection to, um, than if I didn't have a father figure. You know, I had more of a connection because I would always see them throughout weekends at school. They would pick me up. My mom would pick me up. We would always have big, you know, huge barbecues and dinners um, on the weekends. And, you know, it was just something I, I grew up with them. I grew up with them through my daily life. And, you know, it wasn't, it wouldn't just be like coming out to my mom. Um, it would be coming out to my whole family and seeing what they would say. And, you know, and eight aunts and uncles, there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of opinions that could be said about you. And, you know, part of me was trying to suppress my emotions. And I'll admit, I did have internalized homophobia saying, you know, this isn't right. You know, this isn't, maybe this isn't the right path for me. Um, you know, I tried suppressing those emotions a little bit, but, you know, eventually emotions get the best of you and they don't, they aren't emotions. They're, you know, who you are. They're what you're born with. and. It's not something you choose. Um, so it was just a struggle to, you know, come out and, you know, face my family's feelings. And, you know, with that, I think I had to get over that fear of, you know, just because they're religious means that they're homophobic or just because um, I view them in a certain way that their personality um, that shines to me doesn't mean that they're going to take it the way I think they will. And I just had to get over my comfort zone and, you know, sh- show them who I was. And, you know, that's what I think happened to me. And uh, of uh, your, like, of people your friends and age and basically trying to talk on other people that are Gen Z, did you feel that there was anything that was specific from them where they found it, you know, outrageous or, or anything on that regard, or do you find that it was pretty safe around, I guess, your you know, fellow peers? So are you asking whether that story was outrageous to them? Or? No, no, no. no. So, so what, what, where, where I'm going with this is, again, trying to talk on the point of, for us, uh, there has been a lot less of a law by law, hey, these people are the others and we need to you know, do things to stop them. And being free from that has allowed us to have uh, a lot more open experiences, both being open to ourselves and open to others, uh, which has been able to destigmatize it through exposure, destigmatize it through education, 
uh, and communication with each other. And so then take that and relate that to, you know, how that has us grow as allies, as that has that grow with help, and our fears and concerns with the current legislation. Because that is the next part that I want to talk about, is these laws are, you know, again, continuing to ramp up more and more. Braden touched on, like, yeah, it's going to be continuation. I am very, very concerned with it as well and completely agree, but I also want to open up to uh, the rest of the group to talk and get their ideas on how they, they feel about the legislation and, you know, what they think that can be done, uh, you know, within their side, other than, of course, voting, canvassing, uh, and having continued conversations uh, to discuss with others. I just want to respond to this comment that just came in from Neo Maxim about the, because I think this is an interesting question, the four different sporting leagues, uh, having like one for cis men, cis women, trans men, and trans women. Um, and I feel like that while in theory might sound tempting, I it's, I think it could actually end up having, and maybe Mallory knows more about this, could end up having more variation between those groups, or I'm sorry, within those groups than even across those groups, like the way that you might think, like you might, you, everyone thinks, oh, maybe the testosterone spectrum might be this, this way for trans men, but it could end up being, you know, more different within that group than it would be between them and like cis women, for example. Um, which I, so I, I, you know, the, the whole subdividing it even further, I wonder if Mallory thinks that that's, well, there's, there's not enough people or not. There, there, there's straight up not enough people, uh, in yeah. terms of trans youth. Uh, yeah, trans, trans people small. right now is 1%. Uh, so far, uh, I've, tra- uh, I found a study where was trans youth is at 5%. So if we assume generously, you know, it goes to 10%, but realistically s- maintains around that 5% to 8%, uh, of the population. And of course you're, you know, dividing that by two, as well as taking in the fact that, uh, trans people, when it comes to sports, uh, participate in, tra- uh, sports at 15%. Uh, of the of that population versus uh, cis at fifty percent, uh, there's just not enough people, uh, and that's again on the point of what I was saying earlier, where there was thirty six collegiate level trans athletes. You're not going to be able to make a league with that. Uh, I I do forget if it's uh, thirty six of trans female versus trans um, on that. I mean, and I'm even surprised, I'm surprised at that number even today. I mean, that feels generous to me. I hope that there's 36. Um, But, you know, I think the, I think the bigger and the bigger picture, I'm, I'm concerned that doing something like that is going to just otherize. Exactly. You know, uh, all that does is it, it singles, it singles an insular minority out for further oppression. Um, if you get, if, for example, like if I was a tennis player, um, or a, a pickleball player, I hope it gets into the Olympics. Um, you know, like if I had to only play against like other women who were trans identified, well, first of all, that's going to like absolutely out us. It's going to be extremely reductionist. Like, and it's going to say all, this is the only thing that's important about you is the fact that you are not cis. So here you go. Everybody in the whole world, look at this person. And then I'm going to be sitting there like with nobody to play with or play against because there's not enough, there's not enough people out there to play with me. 
uh, you know, in, in some kind of league. And I think that that is, um, that is just not, it's not a workable solution, uh, in terms of the numbers and the statistics, but it's also just not fair. It's not fair, uh, because the goal should never be to otherize, uh, a group of people who are simply just trying to make their way in this world and to actualize, um, as who they are and what they want to do and who they want to be. Yes. Uh, another uh, comment on that is any legislation that you pass where you are, again, going specifically sports, uh, I've been trying to not make it on you know, specifically the sports topic, but if you do say, hey, we're going to bar trans women from being able to uh, participate in sports, then it will necessarily, uh, and this has been passed by lawmakers, uh, allow for genital inspection checks. So if I suspect someone is a uh, trans female, not a cis female, because they beat my daughter and I'm a very upset parent, I can accuse of it. They'll then need to provide proof. The way that they'll need to provide the proof is they'll need to go through a physical exam through a medical professional, uh, which will be invasive to actually check to see, hey, you know, are all of their parts the correct parts that they need to be? Uh, so yes, it, it, it is something where in theory, you know, it makes some amount of sense. Uh, but in practice, it would not be viable. But going back to the um, topic earlier of you know talking about fears, concerns, uh, and just like working uh, as an ally with others if people want to you know, talk on that topic. So, Braden, if you had anything that you wanted to say further on uh, you know the ever expanding parts <laughs> of the law. Well, I mean, first of all, I just want to say, if you're saying protect the children and you're calling for mandatory genital inspections, you're not protecting the children. You know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. You don't have to be an idiot to understand that. And also, something that I think is so curious is how a lot of these states, like Missouri, which is passing all of these bills in the name of protecting the children, although it's going further in Missouri, a lot of these are the same state legislatures who are refusing to ban child marriage. Now, I forgot what state it was, but basically it was like one week they decided to ban trans youth from being able to medically transition. And then the next week they declined to formally ban child marriage. So, you know, I've said it before, I sound like a broken record, but they don't really care about this. I mean... Obviously, the Republicans in leadership, they hate trans people, but it's, in my opinion, not more than they hate gay people or bi people or Muslims or black people. It's just that right now they see the trans community potentially because it is more of a smaller community compared to others. It's an easy target right now. Um, we were talking earlier about how it's easy to rile up feelings of disgust because of the society that we live in, unfortunately. So right now it's just a matter of this is a target we have and hey, there's going to be the least amount of opposition when we mess with these people. So let's take them first. Um, this is going to do nothing to protect children. We talked earlier about how, look, if you ban being able to transition as a youth, that might sound good in theory, but it's going to lead to increases in mental health issues and unfortunately kids taking their own lives because they're not able to live their authentic lives. And frankly, if you want to do that, you're a disgusting human. Like, there's no way around it. Christina, any uh, ending, like, closing thoughts for wrapping up of concerns, final things of, to get up? 
Um, basically just what Braden said. Also, I looked and it was West Virginia. You're right. They literally next week, the next agenda was about declining that child marriage, um, bill that they were trying to introduce. But I honestly agree saying that if you're saying protect the children and then you're going back and saying, well, wait, give me all of your medical history and let me make sure that you have the proper genitals. It's just so backhanded and it's very full of malice and hate. And I will continue to be disgusted by it. And I hope that it gets held accountable one day. Nolan? Closing thoughts and statements? Um, I just agree with everything that's been said. I have nothing add, nothing um, unique to add. To add. Um, but I do think that these are all um, really important issues that we touch upon. And um, I can't say that I, I can't agree more. And Sam? Yeah, uh, I mean, my final thought would be that I truly believe that this widespread swath of legislation across the states is a backlash to what Republicans know is the inevitable case of the younger generation being far, far more comfortable with accepting trans and not, not gender, you know, different differences. They, the rates of transgender youth for the under uh, 30 is about, uh, I think it's up to like 2, 2% and then 3% of under 30 who identify as non-binary. And that's compared to like in the over 50 cohort, like 0.3%. So you're talking about 10, 50 times increases in the proportion of people in the younger generations who are comfortable identifying that way. And they know that it's just a matter of time. And I think that that's, that's why this legislation is being introduced so, uh, so fiercely and why it's suddenly become problematized to the way it is uh, for still what is a very small portion of the population. And, you know, does, does not affect, especially with the sports thing, doesn't affect people in the, in the, not, not anything compared to way bigger issues in the world of athleticism, like uh, performance enhancing drugs and, and, and just far, you know, football. Yeah. Or entire inequities in like the government structures of how, college football and 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 the money that gets put into that and how that gets redirected you could there's so many things you could talk about with athletics that this is just such a small portion of it so i think that this backlash is a response to the inevitable but it's not going to work in the in the in the end and then Mallor? uh sam i think that you are you're hitting the nail on the head uh, I think in, in kind of the the 30,000 foot view here I think that this is just part of uh, a, a generational transition. You've got two extremely large generations in this country. You've got the boomers uh, who have kind of held power and their philosophies and ideologies. And then you've got Gen Z, which is uh, now outnumbering boomers. It is the next huge mega generation coming along. And I'm a millennial. Um, so I'm like one of the older millennials, but um I think that this is just kind of like two storm fronts coming together and, and the resolution will be, but as Sam said, this is all an inevitability. Inevitability of Gen Z is, is what it is. Um, and so I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't want to say everything's going to be okay. Just like, let's just continue because a lot of what I see does remind me of a little bit of like how things devolved from like Weimar Republic, Germany in the twenties, you know, in the early thirties to 
like late thirties Germany. And that scares me. Um, but I also acknowledge that we have a massive, massive, uh, much more awake and informed, uh, and conscientious generation that's coming up in Gen Z, which I'm sort of, I'd like to think I'm Gen Z adjacent. Um, and I think that it is inevitable that the, the change is coming, the progress is coming because you are, you are going to outnumber all of us, all the other generations. And, and that gives me comfort. And to, to add my uh, final thoughts on this before we uh, wrap up and talk about next week's topic uh, or reveal it, uh, we, like, like I've said, uh, similarly to the Federalist Society episode, the reason why that these laws are being passed, that these bans are being implemented, that there is a need to have all of these put into writing uh, to put this oppression against us is because the tides are going in the favor of freedoms for people, of acceptance for people, of recognizing science and medicine as something that we can respect and respecting these institutions. And it is something that is fearful to others because of change. It is something that pulls well to attack temporarily, but it is something that is not being, that is continuing to um, bring our, our generation more and more, more involved with politics as it does affect our everyday lives. So I, I, I am hopeful in that. I am incredibly concerned with the legislation that's being passed. I, uh, I, I, I do know people that are being directly uh, impacted by the legislation that is being passed, and I do what I can to, you know, assist them. But I do know overall that this is something that is something that people believe in, which is the freedom and human rights and dignity for everyone else. Now, on the topic of thinking of for the children for next week, uh, we will be discussing the recent child labor law rollbacks. Uh, as well as being able to revisit other discussions of labor uh, and how Gen Z is operating uh, within the new workforce. So thank you everyone for coming in and listening. Uh, hopefully you learned something new. Hopefully we had something to spell and hopefully we were able to bring you some new perspective. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.